As we settle ourselves in this morning, we're going to be starting a new series today. So if you could find, if you have a Bible with you, if you don't, the words will be on the screen, but if you've got a Bible with you either on your phone or it'll probably be easier to find it if it is on your phone, we're going to be starting our study in Habakkuk, uh, an Old Testament prophet that, you know, a lot of people don't even know is in the Bible because <laughs> it's just, depending on how large your print is, I'm kind of blind, so he actually fills five pages on my Bible. Um, he's uh, only three chapters long, but he's a very powerful Powerful little prophet with a message that he has to say, and I think it's very, very fitting, actually, for what it is we're looking at today. So if you have the ability, if you would please stand with me in honor of God's word, and we're going to read, go into prayer, and then we will start. First four verses we're going to be looking at this morning in the first chapter of Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth, perverted. This is God's word. You may be seated as we just go into prayer this morning. Father, we just want to come before you, open our hearts. Open our minds. Prepare us, Lord, just as you have through song this morning to understand and realize who Jesus is, especially in the midst of the message that Habakkuk brought, the questions that he brought before you are much the same questions that we could have today without any difference at all, although we have a different answer. We have the completed answer. Father, help us to find that today. Help us to receive what you have to say to us. We love you. We thank you, Father. We pray your healing upon all those who are in need today. Encouragement for all those who need it. Lord, that you would bring peace and comfort to those who are struggling. We want to lift up everybody that is within our body, Lord, that just needs your your holy hand upon them. That your name would be glorified. Even in our struggles, Lord, we would see you. We would know that you are sovereign, that your providential care is upon us. No matter what this world looks like, Lord. You are in charge, and there's nothing that happens that surprises you. But much like Habakkuk, we get confused sometimes. So help us. Make this book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself today, and show us our Savior. And show us ourselves, most importantly, Lord, in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. How long? I've titled the message today, How Long? And it'll probably take us eight weeks, that's how long, to get through this really short chapter, actually this short book. But I really want us to focus primarily this morning on this, and we'll walk through it as we establish some groundwork for what Habakkuk's going to look like, is how are the people of God, and if you are a believer in Jesus, and if you are a Christian, that is you, how are the people of God living in a world where injustices seem to prevail, to remain faithfully present within that culture, Seeking out the lost in order that we can help in God's goodness to make them whole. That's our mission and that's our task. And we're going to work that through as we begin to look into this tiny and often overlooked book, actually. 
this little prophet Habakkuk, we're going to see and hopefully define all of the dynamic tensions of a righteous person in conflict with what he knows to be God's law and his righteous promises, seeing all of those in light of what he sees playing out in front of him and going on all around him in this world, in the wider world in which he lives, trying to make sense out of those things. We're going to work through all of that. See, the first four verses that we take a look at here show Habakkuk's frustration with what he sees as God's inaction with everything that's going on. And before we think it's pretty bold that Habakkuk stands here, wherever it is he is, and challenges the Lord in the way in which he does, I think we ought to ask ourselves if we aren't a bit like him when we become frustrated with the things that are going on, when we feel a little bit out of control, and when we forget just how sovereign God actually is over the affairs of men. I think we are going to find ourselves to be a bit more like Habakkuk than we think. And you're going to find as we go through this book that verse 5 and the second half of verse 5 in chapter 1 and then verse 4 in chapter 2 have earned the distinction of being what we like to call refrigerator verses. Those verses that we always go to, we hang them up around our house so that we can remember them. It says, for I am doing, I'll read the whole thing actually, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Most people don't know where that comes from, but that comes from this book. And then the other one that we know very well is that the righteous shall live by what? By faith. Habakkuk has the word that Paul left out and the writer of the Hebrews left out. The righteous shall live by his faith. And we're going to work that through and what that really looks like when we get there. Because it's quoted, those, that verse, 2-4, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Twice by the Apostle Paul and once by the writer to Hebrews. So it's important for us to take note that it was quoted. Not just once, not twice, but three times. And when you go to those places in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, in Galatians 3.11, and then in Hebrews chapter 10, you go to those places, you're going to discover that it's quoted in the context of God's people living in a culture in a world in conflict with the truth and the promises of God. It's in conflict with itself, trying to figure out what they are supposed to do. And Paul pulls that verse forward to help us understand because we're looking to bring answer to the questions of how it is we are to live in the world that God has put us in. It's hard for us to do, especially in the midst of being persecuted, being pushed off to the side, So what are we to do, the question would be asked. How are we supposed to live? And even more deeply, as we see things, unfortunately, like El Paso and things like Dayton, why aren't you doing anything about what's going on in this world? Those questions come up. If we are honest with ourselves, we wrestle through those. If you don't, God bless you. Help me understand how you don't, but we do. You see, the gospel hope is going to be seen in this book as well over the course of the next six to eight weeks. We can find Jesus in this book very clearly, written centuries before he was even born. In that, Jesus, the world, has been judged. Sin has been absolutely destroyed. And all nations of this world have access to the throne room of God in and through the faith of Jesus. We can come before God the Father and we can receive salvation because of what Jesus has done for us. The righteous shall live by whose faith? His faith. 
His faithfulness to the covenant. His faithfulness to walk out what he was supposed to walk out. All in order that we may be able to have what we could never earn on our own. Because we don't have the ability to do that. That in Christ we can rejoice because death and evil has been defeated. It doesn't look it. I understand that. But that's a fact. That in Christ, death and evil has been defeated. Yet within that, the very deep truth and reality that we see, when we take a look at the world, it doesn't look like the promises of God are actually true. When we wake up and we open up the newspaper or we turn on the news or we read on our phone the things that are going on, it's hard for us to make sense that Jesus actually is King and Lord over this place. But He is. The world is just in conflict with itself because it does not want to bow its knee. And much like Habakkuk, as we walk into this book, we have a few things that we're going to be confronted with that we're going to work out, not just today, but over the course of the next couple months. Number one is the dynamic tension of the now and the not yet. Communion speaks of the now and the not yet. We are doing in the now of what happened in remembrance in what? The past, what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. But why do we do it now? We do it now because we have a promise that in the future, he's going to come back. And he's going to fulfill every single promise that has yet to be fulfilled. And to show the world that he is king and lord. So we have to figure out how we live in that dynamic tension of the now and the not quite yet. That we know that God's promises are true and his sovereignty rules. We have to live also, number two, in a world that's in collapse. When a world is in rebellion against its maker, this is exactly what we can expect. Justice is not served. As much as we try, as much as we seek to do so, justice is not served. Divisions abound and wickedness continues to rule. Every day we wake up, we find something else just a little bit farther out, away from what is good and what is right and what is just. How do we serve a world that's in collapse? We were not left behind in order that we can safely get to the finish line. We were left behind here because we have a job to do. And then thirdly, how can we find joy? How do we find joy in the midst of suffering? And again, live faithfully present within the culture that we've been placed. You'll see in your bulletin, we have those three words, faithfully present within. How do we live faithfully to the promises of God, knowing that they are true, within the culture that we have been placed, whatever that may look like for each and every one of us, and how can we be present within that culture so that people will see and understand that it is Jesus in us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that operates in and through us. How do we become faithfully present within? Because we're going to discover as we unpack this little book, there's a lot to it, that God uses on a regular basis both kings and kingdoms, to execute judgment. He uses kings and kingdoms to execute judgment. Here in Habakkuk's time, we're going to discover it happens to be the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Depends on what version you have. Nothing more than another wicked, adulterous, evil kingdom that overstepped its bounds and took its freedoms that it had just a little bit too far. That's why Habakkuk has his complaints the way he does before God, is that God is actually using wicked men and a wicked kingdom against his own people because of their rebellion and sin. Habakkuk can't make that work in his mind. It doesn't make sense to him why God would do that. But you see, we're also going to discover as we unpack this book that God doesn't leave these people untouched. 
He does not leave them unaccountable for the things that they do. And this is very important for us to understand. We ought to see also that just because God uses somebody or some kingdom in a way that affects his purposes doesn't all of a sudden make that person or that kingdom God's man or God's woman. We have got to sort that out. God uses who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And we have to be careful not to go down this road that all of a sudden they are now God's kingdom or they are God's man as though because they're doing God's work the way in which they're supposed to, that they are instantly a believer that we can run up a flagpole. Generations have made that mistake and we have to be careful not to do that. Beware of thinking so. Beware of thinking so. A tree is known by what? I don't ask for a response often, but let me see. A tree is known by its fruit. Think on that. A lesson that Habakkuk and us as well have to really work out and that we have to learn is that there is no one in power whom God does not allow to be there. Let that settle. I know these are common sense things. I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm simply reminding us all, as Alistair Begg would say, of the things that we ought not to forget. God uses whom he wants, and there is no one in power who he does not allow to be there, whether it be for good or for ill. God's sovereignty and his providence allows kings and kingdoms to rule for his purposes and for his glory. They are held accountable when they don't do what they're supposed to. He holds every one of them accountable for what they do and how they do it. Not just that they do it, but how they go about doing it. And that is regardless of systems, that is regardless of party politics, and that is regardless of the so-called good ones that we might like better than the other. God doesn't care. God uses whom he's going to use. Our duty is to be the best citizens possible, and we are to be prayerfully aware of how God wants to use us within the culture that we're in. And if ever we overstep our bounds and we help the gospel to lose credibility in this world or we bring shame against the character of our king, we ought really to be thinking through what we're doing. It is him first. Everything else, including the nation in which he has blessed us with that is subservient to and at the foot of the cross. It is the cross that we look to first and foremost. You see, ultimately Habakkuk's struggle has to do with injustice and unpunished wickedness. It's a struggle we all face. And he doesn't understand why those people are actually bringing it about. Because it's especially on the part of the Babylonians that he is very much misunderstanding. One of our challenges to sort out along with Habakkuk is the call to live faithfully present within the culture. You'll hear that over and over and over again. How are we to live faithfully present within the culture? It's a culture that we understand grows increasingly polarized. Every day you can get up, you can look for the damage report. It is increasingly polarized. It's antagonistic towards each other, and it's antagonistic towards the gospel message of Christ. Deeply antagonistic. We are called to faithfulness in that world wherever God puts us. We are to stand our ground and we are to be faithfully present within. And at the same time, we are to be within. We are not to be of. 
which means we don't use the systems of this world to accomplish what it is we think God ought to be doing. Especially if it violates what God calls us to. See, Habakkuk is wrestling through how this is supposed to work out. And one of the things that this doesn't mean is that we isolate ourselves. We are not supposed to isolate ourselves in this world. We are not supposed to do that. We are not supposed to wall ourselves off, build big fences, build big walls to keep everybody out, and refuse to associate with non-believers so that we aren't contaminated with this world, as it were. That's not what we're called to do. If that be the case, my question is, how would the gospel of Jesus get to a lost world if we are hiding ourselves away from a lost world? The answer to that question, it would not get out. They would remain lost while we remained, what? Found in our own little bubble. And that is not what we are called to. It doesn't work. And Paul's challenging the Corinthian church in his first letter about this when he tackles a whole bunch of different things. He makes it very clear to them because they started walling themselves off against the outside world. They always went to the extreme and everything. And Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. See, he's addressing questions that were asked as we recall about the gifts, okay? Not at all meaning. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Why? Since that would mean you would need to get out of the world. He's not... Telling people, isolate, separate, stay away from, stay in your own little community. In fact, he makes it very clear, I'm telling you exactly the opposite. If you continue on in that passage and I give you that for homework, he says that I was talking about those who are within the church who claim to be followers of Jesus who behave that way. Not at all the world. You see, Paul's charge is against isolating ourselves. We cannot expect Christian behavior ever at any point from a non-Christian person. You just simply can't. And if you do, you will be constantly frustrated and dissatisfied in your life trying to witness when you have expectations of people who don't know Jesus to behave as if they did. See, the problem with the church in this world is we're supposed to behave like Jesus and most of us don't. And it confuses the world. It confuses the world. How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to walk? See, we will never reach lost people without going out and associating with lost people. How do we start? How do we live in the world as Christians in the now and the not yet promises of God? How do we do so in the face of injustices, in the face of iniquity, in the face of non-compassion? What are we called to be and do? Faithfully present within our culture. So the world may know and see who Jesus is. You see, Habakkuk, much like Jeremiah, the first reading in Jeremiah chapter 12, brings this complaint, and he's actually bold enough to ask God about these things. He doesn't like what's going on. So he does so because he knows of God, and what he knows of him does not match up with what he sees going on in the world. So he goes to the right place. Unlike the world, he doesn't turn away from God. He actually goes directly to him in painful honesty and says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? How long? And you will not hear. 
That's pretty bold. Or cry to you violence, Habakkuk 1, verses 2 and 3, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The how long, O Lord, question here, the people of God continue to ask right up until this day. How long, O Lord? For much the same reasons. You see, evil and wickedness continues to rule. Empires continue to do things unchecked. Bad people continue to rule and run. Human beings are suffering all over this world. They're abused. They're used. Constantly as pawns and power plays so that people can maintain their little worlds, their kingdoms. Human beings are used as puppets and fodder in the games of politicians all over this world. We're not to isolate ourselves I'm not telling you that. What I'm saying is that this is what happens in this world. You see, it's been 2,000 years since the events of Good Friday, since the burial of Jesus, and since the resurrection and then ascension. It's been 2,000 years, yet the world doesn't seem to be any better. In fact, it continues to get worse. Does it not? Jesus promised us that it would get worse. His sovereign hand is upon even the worst. He understands that evil is going to try and have its day. All of these questions that Habakkuk is asking can be asked today and is asked today. But you see, the beauty is, is that for those of us who believe in Jesus, those of us who have him as our Lord and King, Christians, our answer would be a bit different because we have the finished story. Habakkuk had half the story. But we have the finished story. For the believer, the writer to the Hebrew makes this clear. In chapter 12, there's a big fat therefore. So in order to understand that, we need to know what happened in chapter 11. In chapter 11, the writer to Hebrews lists all of the heroes of the faith who believed without seeing, who died without the promises that God had given them being fulfilled, but they knew that God was faithful. They knew that even in persecution, even in the evil wickedness of this world, that God would do what he promised he was going to do. Thus, they were the heroes of the faith. Therefore, the writer says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely and let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of what? The throne of God. At the throne of God. You see, this is the hope of every believer. This is the hope of every believer. And we are called to hold on to that hope. And at the same time, we are called to hold it out to those who have yet to believe. We don't receive it and then keep it to ourselves. For it is by his faith that we stand. It is by his faith that we believe. It is by his faith that we go out into this world and we understand that God has a plan for us to do. This Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah King, is the hope and the anchor. He is our reference point for all truth. And that is one of the reasons why this world is falling apart. There is no reference point for truth anymore. But Jesus is the anchor in every storm. He is the reference point for truth. He is the reference point for what justice looks like. He is the reference point for what mercy looks like. And he is the absolute reference point for understanding God's goodness and grace to this world. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We did not deserve what he gave us, but he gave it to us nonetheless. So we hold that loosely, giving it out. 
See, that's the problem. The non-believer still struggles with these things just like we do. But they don't have a place to go for an answer. They don't have a place to go. They have no reference point except to turn inward towards themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do when I'm struggling is turn inward towards myself because I know what's inside of me. Outside of Christ, I got nothing. I have nothing. So if I'm turning inward and I'm looking at myself on how it is this world can be a better place as a non-believer would, what's my answer? What's my response? I discover, if I'm honest with myself, that I, as a part of humanity, am part of the problem. And I am still left without a solution to the problem. See, that's the danger of atheism. It takes more faith to believe that there is no God than it does to believe that there is a God. Because if you remove God from the equation, as I have said before, we are left with a conundrum of I am what is wrong with the world and I no longer have a way to fix it. And that is an empty hope. But in Christ, we have all the answers. It is when we look outside of ourselves. It is when we look outside of ourselves and to Christ and to what it is he has done that we find the answer for the world's problems. You see, until the human heart is changed and the mind is transformed, and it understands what it is supposed to understand, to think in line with his kingdom, we cannot answer these questions. A non-believer cannot answer these questions. And that's why it's important that we are where a non-believer is, so that when they ask the question, we have the capacity to answer it. All we can do if we don't have an answer for this is to argue and debate over opinions I don't need to go any farther than that. You just think that one through for a minute and see exactly what's going on in our world. Trying to sort out what is the best solution to the predicament that we find ourselves in. And that's all we do. And then we get meaner and more meaner and meaner. And we get louder and we continue to yell at everybody. Look look at the systems that we have of politics in this world. Well, politics are good. They're man's effort to try and fix the problems that man has created. That's our best effort. But you know, the problem is is that the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Look at our systems of politics. Tell me that this isn't so, that we haven't just spiraled out of control and we no longer have any answers. We're just yelling. And whoever yells the loudest has the news clip for the evening. There's no answers there. There's none. It's empty. It's all in a constant effort to get the right people in the right place of power all in order to get a preferred outcome, while a noble thing is always a wrong thing. We cannot outmaneuver the sovereignty of God. And he will put who he wishes where he wishes. We need to understand that. Habakkuk's going to discover this issue as well. Yahweh's apparent toleration of sin, David Baker says, especially injustice. And this seems to circle around the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. This raises yet a greater moral problem for Habakkuk. His question is, is how can he, God, use his instruments of judgment of people who are more cruel and inhumane than those who are being punished? That's a very bold and gutsy question of a prophet to ask of our creator. But I think he understood God's grace. Why else would he do such things? Why else would he go to God? And it's one we often ask. And the non-believer asks, and I leave that with you, because the first question I am typically asked when I'm asked what I do for a living, they either start making jokes, 
which is what happened yesterday when I was out at a museum. He told me a pastor joke because, you know, it's the safest thing to do, apparently. I'd only heard it a hundred times, but, you know, it was funny. I think we only have three jokes in the whole repertoire, but there it is nonetheless. Or they ask this question, how can you believe in a God who allows so much suffering and evil and injustice to happen in this world? It's a question. It's a question which Habakkuk is going to help us answer. If you've never been asked that question ever in your life, check your friend group. Check your friend group. Ask yourself, how many non-believing friends have I surrounded myself with? Have I sectioned myself off away so that I can keep doing this, so that I can stay clean and I'm safe and I'm all these things? Ask yourself that question. What does your friend group look like? I would challenge you to make friends with non-believers. How else do they get to know the gospel? See, the mission of the church, as I said, is not to separate, but to be faithfully present within this world. That's our job. The mission of the church is to find the lost in order that the lost may be made whole in Christ. It's not about what I want, what you want, what we like, what we don't like. It's about helping the lost be found, as Joe and Abby Sear say in Manchester, New Hampshire. Helping the lost be found and making them whole. That's the objective of the gospel. You see, when Micah the prophet wrote his message, he was straightforward. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He has told you. We don't have to sit back and go, what has he said? Mike is clear. He has told you. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Those are all action items, are they not? Those are all things we are to do. Are we doing this? Is the church doing this? Is that our goal? Are we doing it in our day-to-day life? Or are we focused on other things? We focused on trying to get the right people in power so that we can be in charge again as if we ever were in charge. And frankly, as if that ever was a charge of the gospel for us to do. I have some news for you. It wasn't. It's not what we're to be doing. I am not saying we stay out of politics. Politics needs godly people. But not at the cost of the character of our king and the credibility of the message of the gospel. Otherwise, we lose our prophetic voice in this world. We have no capacity anymore to speak into somebody's life. We can't look at a non-believer and give them the answers that they need if we've run ourselves up the wrong flagpole. Close with this. As the worship team comes up, please. Within the context that we find in Habakkuk, The church ought to be focused on justice. The church ought to be focused on mercy and grace. The church ought to be focused on humility 
just like this prophet. You see, if we aren't focused on those things, as Habakkuk was, that's why he's asking these questions. Justice isn't being served. Verse 4, the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. He's in conflict because he knows the God in who he believes. And it's not working out the way he thinks it should. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Justice isn't held captive. It just isn't going forth in a godly way. You see, God will bring an answer to Habakkuk's question. But let's beware. Let's beware of thinking that it doesn't affect me or the things that are going on in this world are of no concern because I promise you one day it will be you and there very well may be nobody left to care for your concerns. And if the church is to be anything in any place in this world, it is to be a voice of justice, a voice of mercy, and a voice of humility. And it is to be in that place where injustice happens, being the loudest voice saying this is not right. When human beings are dehumanized, we ought to be the loudest voice saying that person bears the image of the creator of the universe and what is going on here is wrong. Let's stand and bow our heads. Fathers, we prepare to close in one last song here as the prayer teams take their place. I'm thankful for the message that Doug Clay brought at our general council this past week. Challenged as we are in this world trying to figure out how we are supposed to go forward with all of the things that are happening and all of the divisions, not just in this world, but within the church. He challenged us as pastors to stop focusing on politics to make things right and get back to the prophetic call of God upon the church to bring the gospel to a lost world, to tell people about Jesus, that without him, we have nothing, but with him, we have everything. All we need to do is step into that relationship with him no matter how bad we are, no matter how bad we've gotten, no matter where we've gone, no matter what we've done, all we need to do is say to Jesus, I believe who you are. I want you to fix my cold, hard heart. Make me live and teach me how to do things right. That's you today. I challenge you. I'm not making a big deal out of it, but step out of your seat. Come get prayer. There's a tug on your heart, even if you do know Jesus, if there's a tug on your heart, the word tells us that that is the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond to him. Melissa. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. He
Here's my 